Miranda, the son of Puerto Rican immigrants, has smuggled radical theater into our homes. The job's been done to perfection. That's from Charlotte O'Sullivan of London Evening Standard talking about Hamilton roaring on a Disney Plus this past Friday. I'm sure a lot of you are already singing the songs if you haven't seen the live show. I'm going to defer to my man Joe quite a bit on Hamilton because uh, i got to be honest with you. I saw the stage show a few years ago with my wife. It's incredible. It's sensational. Everything you've heard about it is true. But watching it on the small screen wasn't as uh, blown away, of course, because it wasn't a theater experience for me. So I know there's going to be a lot of people right now saying, you're an idiot. You're a boob. It's the greatest thing ever. I got to tell you, the stage show was sensational on screen. I think it lost a little luster. Having said that, my man Joe watched the entire thing. He's also Puerto Rican descent, so I think Joe will have some good background here in Hamilton, and we'll get into that in a second. What I'm really fired up about, though, I'll be honest with you, Scarface. I hadn't watched Scarface in a long time. I watched Scarface again. Normally, I don't make a lot of notes. Joe, I've got like five pages of notes here on Scarface, so I'm not going to shut up about Scarface today. Um, also, Il Postino, which is a beautiful Italian movie. Things stick in my brain sometimes. I remember Joe, when we were doing Total Recall, said, oh, I like Il Postino. I said, wow, I'm impressed. Joe's like 31 years old. He actually saw Il Postino. Like, that, that is some pretty good street cred. So I dug through my DVDs, and I watched Il Postino again. How about this? This is how old the damn DVD is. With about 30 minutes to go, it starts skipping. I go, are you kidding me? I spent about 20 minutes trying to get the damn thing to work. It works for the last 10 minutes. So I rewatched Il Postino, but missed about 20 to 25 minutes of the movie. Brutal. And The End of the Affair, which is a movie I love from 1999. I'm trying to show off my uh, estrogen side here. We talk Big Little Lies, big female score. End of the Affair, female-centered story. Julianne Moore, it's incredible. Also, Kanye West is running for president. What the hell is that about? Matt Schrader is a great guest. Blockbuster, which is a new podcast from Cadence 13, our partners here. It's all about James Cameron and Matt's a buddy of ours. I had him on the podcast previously because he directed Score, which is an excellent film music documentary. And speaking of scores, we'll talk about Ennio Morricone. We've got a few more Total Recalls to go. 1991. I'm shocked we hadn't done this. Joe told me we hadn't done it. I'm like, are you kidding me? I love that year because I'm a huge fan of the movie Bugsy. Silence of the Lambs, you know one best picture. I'll tell you why I think Bugsy should have won, and we'll go through all those other categories as well. Thank you, as always, uh, for checking us out and listening. I can't thank you enough. Every time I feel like we should go shorter on this podcast, and then I can't shut up, and we've got great guests, and Joe always contributes something. So I, I, I try to go short, and I can't. We're over an hour. So you know, thanks again to Dave Merhedge. I thought he was tremendous, our guest last week. And as always, thank you for your comments on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, rate, and review. Joanne G.A., Fun podcast, great resource for film. Really enjoy these film and TV series reviews. Love the energy, enthusiasm, and research put into each review. Uh, just wait until Scarface, Joanne. And especially appreciate the genuine respect for filmmakers in general. Uh, just wait, Joanne. We're going to talk about Brian DePaula. Please add this great 1966 comedy to the list of Carl Reiner's funniest works. The Russians are coming. The Russians are coming, along with this 2,000-year-old man's comedy sketch of Mel Brooks. As I said before, Joanne, 2,000-year-old man is brilliant. I mean, that's like Abbott and Costello. So funny, brilliant, but I have never actually seen The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. I love the title. Just like I love the title, it's a mad, 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 mad world, but I haven't seen it. So I will defer to you, Carl Reiner, comedy great. Maybe I'll get around to it at some point. Joe, have you seen it? Russians Are Coming, Russians Are Coming? I have not seen it, but I'm interested, and you're right. You know, the title's so nice, they had to name it twice. <laughs> Just like New York, New York. Let's dive into Hamilton, because like I said, I'm going to defer to Joe on this. The synopsis, in case you've been living under a rock, an unforgettable cinematic stage performance. The film version of the original Broadway production combines the best elements of live theater, film, and streaming to bring the cultural phenomenon to homes around the world for a thrilling 
once in a lifetime experience. I'm already disagreeing with that blurb. Once in a lifetime is in the theater. And I get it. It was incredibly expensive. Trust me. It was for my wife and I. It was our 10-year anniversary. And you think you're not going to tell the property of the price of the tickets. It was $500 apiece. I'm sure it was some third-party site. I had horrible angina that the tickets were not even going to work. But sure enough, we were like lower balcony. This was after Lin-Manuel Miranda was in it, which Mike Greenberg was telling me, oh, don't even bother. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, without Lin, it's not worth it. What do you mean? Listen, I'm sure the guy walks on water here, but I got to see Hamilton. And I was blown away. Uh, listen, I'm not the biggest hip-hop guy, and I thought the music was sensational. I'm Canadian. I don't know anything about American history. I was blown away by the historical knowledge. When I watched that production, what you feel is the sheer audacity of Lin-Manuel Miranda. Like, it's just, how the hell did you come up with this? I'm reading David Epstein's book, Range, which was suggested by my friend Dan Stanzik, former cinephile producer, who obviously is a great book recommender guy. And... In Range, there's a quote by Lin-Manuel Miranda, and he says, I have a lot of apps open in my brain right now. And Epstein said that's a very elegant way of putting it. Like, if you could, we've done this before about Charlie Kaufman. By the way, Charlie Kaufman is a new book out. We're trying to get him on the podcast. God willing, it's going to happen. But I wish we could go into the brain of being John Malkovich, as Charlie Kaufman did. If you go into the brain of being Lin-Manuel Miranda, like, hang on a second. Alexander Hamilton, long dead figure, King George III, Aaron Burr, and you put hip-hop and like R&B, and it was an all-black and Latino cast. Like, what? And it becomes the greatest thing ever. Like, like anybody who doesn't think it's the greatest musical ever hasn't seen it, is bitter, doesn't know what they're talking about, or is my brother. My brother's the only guy I know who saw it with his wife. He was like, eh. I'm like, really? He's like, eh. I'm like, okay. Granted, he's a Metallica guy, but still. I don't, Danny Cannell loved it. I don't know any one person who went song was, dude, I was floored. It's incredible. It's so passionate. And he started to say, well, what makes it so special? The moment where they say immigrants get the job done, whole crowd started cheering. I remember tweeting it afterwards, and some idiot actually responded and said, well, yeah, as long as it's legal immigrants. And I go, listen, I'm not getting into a political discourse. My point is, how the hell do you make a production in 2016 which is relevant 200 years later after the events because it's about immigration, it's about passion, it's about doing the right thing. The music's amazing. The room where it happens is unbelievable. Uh, the story of tonight, when I watched it on Disney+, Plus, again, I'm being honest here. I did not watch the whole thing. I wanted to watch some of the songs. I watched the story of tonight again, which I love. I watched the room where it happens. My, uh, not giving away my shot. Obviously, great song. But I did feel like it was a little bit limiting. Okay, it did not translate as well as I'd hoped for. And I get it. It's a live theater production. How the hell can that be equated on the small screen? But I'm going to disagree with Charlotte O'Sullivan there. I don't think it's, uh, you know, blowing my mind or changing my life. Having said that, I'm going to now turn the stage over to my man, Joe Engelbrecht. For those who do not know, is of Swedish and Puerto Rican heritage. So I'm sure he has a lot of passionate thoughts about Lin-Manuel Miranda, what he's done. He's been very honest, Joe, but saying, listen, I want to get... He said, I listened to him on a podcast, very good, by the way, NPR, Fresh Air with Terry Gross. I sent to Carl Ravitz, Sarah Langs, Kathy Leogrand, and he said on there, being Latino, I want to get Latino stories told. He said, in the Heights, I wrote because it was from my neighborhood. It was a lot of Dominicans in that neighborhood, but a lot of Latinos and a lot of Puerto Ricans. And he said... I wanted to be a musical theater guy, and I realized there is no musical theater. I have to be a musical composer for the stories I want to tell, and then I can do musical theater. He's an absolute genius. And Joe, you watched it start to finish on the screen. First and foremost, did you see Hamilton in stage? And how did that translate to what you saw this weekend? You know, Ed, and I had never seen Hamilton, the stage play in person, and I've never listened to the soundtrack. So this weekend, I was going into it completely blind, and very fresh. And I thought it was absolutely 
incredible for so many reasons. For all the reasons you just said, the history that the the knowledge of it. I remember learning about these things in civics and U.S. history when I was in in high school. But like to see it done in such captivating, intriguing way on a stage that people from all walks of life can appreciate and understand. I thought it was uh, truly, truly, truly incredible. And also, and, and I don't know if you realize this, but um, but my MVP for the play, first off, did you have, was there an actor, a character who stood out to you who was your MVP for this play? Well, it's interesting. You know, at the Celebrity Softball Game, which we used to call for ESPN, we had one of the actors who was in it. His name escapes me now, but I wish I'd seen him in the play. He's a big hulking presence. So whoever the hell he was in the play, I'm sure he was great. Um, but I remember Burr was really good. Again, it, it wasn't the first run, right? This was after Lynn had left. So I think they recycled a lot of them. But I remember the guy who played Burr, I thought was tremendous. And that whole sequence of the duel uh, was amazing. And I mean, just even the love and loss of Alexander Hamilton. Like when he, when he loses the baby, I mean, that song, It's Quiet Outside. Uh, to your point, I've seen the stage play and I have the CD, which I've listened to many times. I mean, that's like a heartbreaking moment. And it, it's, it's hard to replicate that in a live audience. But... Um, the whole cast was uniformly excellent. The guy who played Burr was pretty good. You know who was the, sh- the showstopper? I don't know if you found it the same way. The guy who plays King George III. And I don't know necessarily it's with the actor. It's just that character. When he starts dancing and prancing on the stage, that whole theater in New York City was losing their minds laughing. I am so glad you brought that up. That's Jonathan Groff and Adnan. I know I recommended The Boys to you on Amazon Prime last week, but you need to watch Mindhunter. It's David Fincher's Netflix original series. There's two seasons of it. It's about the FBI at the advent of uh, uh, catching serial killers, essentially. And this is a quick tangent, but Jonathan Groff, who played King George, stars in it, and it is phenomenal, and you got to watch it. Um, but having said that, for me, my MVP, probably the guy rotating the stage, at the bottom, I'm thinking the choreography is on point. I understand the meticulous planning that goes behind this, but whoever was just in charge of rotating the stage, I thought was really, really good too. So maybe that's the wrong thing to take away um, from it. But I will say this really quick. Lin-Manuel Miranda, I think he's incredible. He's been such an advocate for Puerto Rico. He put on this play about Alexander Hamilton, who's from the Caribbean, uh, and he's constantly putting Puerto Rico at the forefront of the conversation, an island that's perpetually in crisis. So I got nothing but respect and admiration for Lin-Manuel Miranda. That's well said, because he speaks from the heart. He's very passionate. Within about five seconds, you know he's a Puerto Rican heritage, that he's Latino. He's proud of that. He wants to tell those stories specifically to you. So I knew that you would feel passionate about that, and for good reason, because he's— uh, Above all things, I think he's, I don't think this is hyperbole. I think he's an artistic genius. And I think he's got a huge heart. And as he said, he was doing that show seven days a week with nothing but guts and guile. And Barack Obama came to see him. And now he's in a production company, I believe, with Barack Obama. They're, they're working on a project together. I mean, it, it's, it's head spinning what Lynn Manuel Brand has been able to do. If you haven't seen Hamilton, definitely watch it on Disney+. Plus. If you saw it on stage like I did, I would say be a little jaded as to how well it translates. But no matter what, haven't seen it or have seen it, get the CD. Double CD is incredible. I think I paid 30 bucks for it after the stage show, and it's, uh, it was in the nonstop rotation. All right, now do I really want to talk about? Al Pacino stars as Tony Montana, an exiled Cuban criminal who goes to work for Miami drug lord Robert Loggia. Montana rises to the top of Florida's crime chain, appropriating Loggia's cokehead mistress, Michelle Pfeiffer, in the process. This is timely. This is not just Virk and his Pacino obsession. 
This is actually important because Luca Guadino, as Joe and I reported recently, is going to remake Scarface, the guy who did Call Me By Your Name, and the Cone brothers are writing the script. A remake of a remake because the original was with Paul Mooney. And Al Pacino says he saw it with some friends on Sunset Boulevard, of all places. They were walking. Oh, Scarface. Let's go see it. And he thought it was amazing. And he said, God, I'd love to be a part of something like that if we ever do that. And Marty Bregman, his longtime friend and producer, who made a lot of movies in the 70s, was the driving force behind it. They get Sidney Lumet involved. Lumet directed Serpico, Dogged Afternoon. He said, you know what we should do? Make him Cuban. That'll be interesting. There's a lot of Cuban immigrants right now in the early 80s in Miami. That's different than the Italian-American gangster and the Tommy gun. They get Oliver Stone to write the script. Oliver Stone himself says he was doing cocaine and while doing research with not only crime lords, but also drug enforcement officials. At one point, Oliver Stone tells the story. He's in Bolivia. He's talking to actual criminals, and he name drops somebody, and he realized they thought he might be an informant. He might be informing for the wrong side. And he said it was actually, only Oliver Stone would say this, incredibly helpful in his writing process. I almost died, but it was helpful because I realized what's that feeling like when you know the ruse is up and you could be in trouble, even though Oliver Stone clearly wasn't doing anything wrong. He goes to Paris, quiets down the cocaine, writes the script, comes back. Sidney Lumet says, no, I want it more political. I also think this is way too violent, hyper-violent. Bregman says, okay, fine, see ya. Let's bring in Brian De Palma. They share the same vision. This word I could say a thousand times about Scarface, and it wouldn't do it justice. Operatic. It is about as operatic as it gets. Find some other synonyms if you like. It's larger than life. It's a big movie, wide canvas. It's operatic. They get Stephen Bauer, who is one of the few Cuban actors in the cast. Uh, I have not seen Scarface since I became good friends with my dear friend Max Bredos, formerly of ESPN. I spoke to Max the other day, and I said, I mean, listen, you as a Cuban, tell me about Scarface. And he goes, well, the first thing that pisses off all Cubans is there's not any Cubans in the damn thing, aside from Bauer, Al Pacino, Michelle Pfeiffer, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, Robert Loja, F. Murray Abraham, can we get some Cubans? Having said that, Bauer is actually Cuban. And when Bregman met him, he goes, okay, well, yeah, this is the guy. He tells De Palma he's good. And they had immediate chemistry with, with Pacino. Pacino says they sat down, they actually developed the backstory and came up with some lines of how they knew each other. One of the funniest lines early in, in the movie is when, you know, Manny says they didn't go for it, and, and Al says, I told you to tell them sanitarium, not sanitation. Michelle Pfeiffer was a relative unknown at the time. Marty Bregman, the producer, said, if you fly your own way, we'll audition you. And she did it. Bregman, for the record, says he's done this a few times with actors, and it's a test. If they do it, they always reimburse them, whether or not you get the part or not. If they don't, you realize they're not passionate about the part. Take listen, young actors out there. If somebody says, are you willing to fly on your own dime? You do it. When I got the job at ESPN, Lori Orlando, my dear, dear friend said, I don't have a job for you, but if you're willing to come down, I'll meet with you. Boom. I got in the car, Hyundai Elantra. Let's pump in some gas. I'll do it. You got to do it on your own dime. That's how things happen in life. Pacino and Michelle Pfeiffer called her very committed, dedicated, and intense. And in a recent interview, because he was around the block here when he was pulling the Irishman, they asked him your favorite kiss. I thought he'd say Diane Keaton, who he had a relationship with, and it's suspected that he regrets they never actually got married. In many ways, it sounds like when you read between the lines, Pacino's long lost love, him and Diane Keaton, never got married. But when he was asked for his favorite kiss all time, he actually immediately said, Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> he said, well, I've been in a couple movies with her. I did Scarface and uh, he did Frankie and Johnny. Robert Loja, as I mentioned, enormous cackle. He's hilarious. I love him from The Sopranos. And also, and I'm not a family guy, guy, but I love the fact there's that Robert Loja bit, which is hysterical. F. Murray Abraham, also non-Cuban. He won Best Actor for Amadeus a year later. 
When you watch Scarface again, what you're struck by is how many one-liners there are and the fact it's impossible not to do it while doing Al Pacino, doing Tony Montana. And that's why I can't read these lines without giving a bad impression. Every dog has to stay. I bury those cockroaches. Say hello to my little friend. So say goodnight to the bad guy. Who do I trust? Me. First you get the money. Then you get the power. Then you get the women. I want what's coming to me. What's that, Chico? The world and everything in it. At times, the dialogue is somewhat ridiculous. This is an actual line from Scarface. This town is like a great big pussy just waiting to get fucked. In the TV version, which Marty Bregman laughs at, somehow they did this, that became this town is like one big chicken just waiting to get plucked. And yet, as Oliver Stone himself has said, and listen, he wanted to direct it. He directed a couple of small movies, but they said, no, you know what? We got Al. It's a big budget. Let's get to Palma. Three years later, by the way, he directed Platoon, one best director. But Stone has said there's no bigger thrill for him than being on the New York City subway, and he hears people quoting Scarface. And as Pacino said, the key was the humor. Otherwise, the character will be too tough to take. It's important that you can laugh at him. You know, early on, <laughs> that scene, I mentioned the sanitation. Later on, he offends Michelle Pfeiffer while sitting in the hot tub. He says, I was only kidding! And he puts on Michelle Pfeiffer's hat at one point, which is hilarious. And Michelle Pfeiffer laughs. It almost looks like she's breaking character and says, playtime is over, Tony. Early on, he's dancing with Michelle Pfeiffer in the club, and that looks ridiculous. Pacino himself said the key when approaching the character was this. He played him two-dimensional. Think about that. We are, in life, we have three-dimensional characters, right? No, no, no. Alistair Tony Montana is two-dimensional. And that was the key. He asked the cinematographer, John Alonzo, to speak to him in Spanish. Al Pacino, for the record, does not speak Spanish. He said, even if I don't understand you, it's fine. I just want to be able to understand it, feel it. He and others, he had on the set, he had a dialect coach, he had other Cuban actors. Hey, correct me. If I say something doesn't sound right, just stop me. We'll do it again. The first scene, how good is De Palma? He introduces Al, who he says reminded him of Humphrey Bogart. They got a great face. All the great movie stars, they got great faces. An angular face. Though that's 363... Three, excuse me, 360-degree camera tracking slowly around Pacino's face. And again, the humor. The fact that guy says to Pacino, where'd you get that scar from, eating pussy? And Pacino says, how am I going to get a scar like this eating pussy? Later on, the guy calls him gay. He's like, oh, are you homosexual? He's like, who is this guy, man? Like, Pacino's reaction is hilarious. All that builds up to the chainsaw scene about 30 minutes in. It's horrifying, but it's expertly edited. De Palma had limbs if he needed to. He had a severed head if need be. Didn't use any of it. Didn't use any of those other appendages. It's all theater of the mind. You start to see the chainsaw cut. Then you cut to Pacino's reaction shot. Then you cut to shots of blood. And he said it was very important to put it 30 minutes in the movie. Because after that, what's more shocking than a guy using a chainsaw to cut off a guy's head? After that, you realize these guys are serious business and serious criminals. The sister Gina, who was, by the way, the sister was in the original Scarface, Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio. Amazing salad, huge afro. Pacino is very overprotective of her. I mean, her last scene after he kills Manny, I mean, she's shooting at Tony saying, fuck me, Tony. Like, it's just so disgusting. She's referring to this incestuous relationship. Fuck me, Tony. Shooting at the guy. And actually, he shoots him in the leg at one point. Pacino himself said, I don't think it's incestuous, but it's complicated. And it showed at least that Tony had tenderness. Uh, speaking of his tenderness... You forget this about Scarface. He refused to blow up a car of an informant with his wife and two kids, which may have led to his downfall. If he was more ruthless and had done that, then Mr. Sosa and the rest of the guys would have let him off the hook. When he wouldn't do that, and he shoots the guy from Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, well, now he's in trouble. 
again, the humor's key. I mean, early on, Bauer and Pacino, remember Bauer's flicking his tongue at a woman, which Oliver Stone said he saw a guy do that. He told Bauer, can you do this? Can you do this tongue thing? And he's like, what the hell is that? And he goes, I saw this guy on the beach do it. And Stephen Bauer says to Oliver Stone, did the girl slap him? And Oliver Stone says, yes, that's what we're going to do in the movie. He goes, okay. And he remember Pacino tells the little kids, look at this guy, look what he's going to do. He's about to get slapped. Uh, the ending is very grandiose. There's a giant mound of cocaine. Pacino buries his head in it. He appears clownish. I can't remember the reviewer, but one review said he looks like kind of a Fellini film. He hurt his hand badly at one point, grabbing the white hot barrel, which led to three to third degree burns. Kathleen Quinlan, who's an actress who's in a Paul 13, she's good friends with Pacino. She once said, you know, people don't realize Al is such a soft guy. He loves poetry. He loves Shakespeare. Like, looking for Richard is about as close as you'll get to the real Al Pacino. He's not a gangster. He's not a tough guy. Like, these guys were shocked when he grabbed the gun the wrong way. He's like, I don't know how to hold a gun properly. I didn't know I couldn't grab the barrel. White hot barrel, third degree burns, which is why there's so many murders in that last scene. De Palma said he got his good friend Steven Spielberg to visit the set, and at one point Spielberg starts suggesting ways to shoot guys, and there's actually a specific shot. There's a low-angle shot, Colombians entering the palace, which was suggested by Spielberg. The last shot took the stuntman two days to fall face-first in the pool. Another stuntman got thrown out of the plane, the F. Murray Abraham scene. All of it collides in one of the most famous gangster movies of all time. It did well commercially, was savaged by critics, with the exception of Vincent Camby. One critic who liked it. And now it's iconic. Gangster rap. It gets name-checked and referenced profusely. It feels so Miami. White suits, pinks and pastels, neon lights. And yet, it was primarily shot in Los Angeles. Only two weeks in Miami, they were terrified because there was protests against the movie. People thought they were affiliated with Castro. They thought it was uh, supposed to give Cubans a bad name. We can't have this movie made. De Palma and Bregman said, fine, we'll shoot in L.A. Some of the exteriors are in New York City. And to this day, it's an enduring classic. Brian De Palma himself says, everybody who I've worked with does a Tony Montana impression. Bruce Willis does a great Tony Montana. Tom Cruise does a great Tony Montana. He goes, we all felt like this was going to be a great movie because of the style involved and the personalities involved. De Palma directing, Oliver Stone writing, Al Pacino acting, Marty Bregman producing. All of it ends up being one of the great gangster films of all time. I'm already skittish about the remake. Having watched it again, good luck, Luca Guadagnino, trying to improve upon Scarface. Joe, it's an absolute classic for Maple Leafs. It's an incredible movie. It holds up so well today, too. And you're right, it's still very much in pop culture, which is a testament to the longevity. But what you said about them bringing in Brian De Palma to share the same vision, I thought that that was interesting. Because you know, I don't know if you knew this, but Brian De Palma submitted the film originally and it got an x rating so he made some cuts resubmitted it a second time it was given another x rating so then he did more cuts resubmitted it a third time got an x rating didn't qualify for uh, r so he brought in a panel of police officers apparently narcotics officers to the mpaa the uh, i believe the motion pictures association of america and and had them talk to um, the panel and say this is a very accurate portrayal of narcotics and it should be seen as anti-drug and only after that happened were they allowed the R rating on the film. It's an amazing story more to that Marty Bregman takes a lot of the credit for bringing in those people and says it was like a jury trial he said it was 18 to 2 they, fo- they voted in favor of giving it an R and De Palma jokingly said everyone always thinks it's the third version that I released but I said hey if an X is an X 
and I got the R, let me go release the first version. So the first version he cut, the, the true director's cut, which he wanted, is the one actually released because they got that R rating, which you're referring to. Wow, yeah. Persistence, you know, it's just like uh, Hamilton, you know, Alexander Hamilton didn't stop. He was persistent and Brian De Palma the exact same way. And that's how he got it in. <laughs> it's the best. I could talk about Scarface all day. Let's do a couple of more reviews. This is gonna be like a two hour podcast. Let's go quick. End of the Affair. It's a beautiful film. Luscious, heartbreaking tale of romance. It's written and directed by Neil Jordan, who did The Crying Game. It's a Graham Greene adaptation. Ray Fiennes plays Maurice Bendrix, who introduces himself with these words. I'm a man of hate. He spots an old friend, Lorraine, Stephen Ray, and he's cold towards Ray's wife, Julia Moore, because he had an affair with her. She reaches out to Morris, but he leaves abruptly after. He's cold, he's aloof, and the story unfolds in flashback. And it's about this torrid affair that they had before a terrible explosion set during wartime in rainy England in which Bendrix is sent flying. Amidst the rubble, he reappears and Sarah leaves abruptly because she made a deal with God. If you save him, I'll never see him again. And sure enough, he appears and that's why she says she has to go and says people love God their whole lives without ever seeing him. Ray finds his character. Maurice Bendrick says, that's not my kind of love. And Sarah, played by Julianne Moore, says, is there any other kind? Eventually, you see her side. The movie packs a surprising wallop, leading to a devastating conclusion. When Stephen Ray screams, Bendrix! And you see Ray finds the typewriter. He's a writer. And then slow motion rushing to Ray in slow motion. I mean, Ray collapses in his arms. Uh, incredible scene. Haunting score, nominated for two Academy Awards, four Golden Globes overall, including Best Motion Picture Drama. I wish it was greeted with more fervor, but watching it again, it reminds me, it came out in 1999, that famed 1999, the best movie year ever. Uh, the final line is amazing, leave me alone forever. Serica ends up being this miracle worker, helping a young boy's facial ailment. I think it's uh, one of Julianne Moore's best ever performances. I think when we did the Total Recall, I said I wish she had won for this Best Actress Oscar back in 1999. But I, I really think it's a, it's a powerful story, and I hope that more people had seen it. Like I said, I think because of the era in which it came out, that may have been harder. But Robert Horton of Film.com said, The elegance of Roger Pratt's camera and the handsome costuming created tension between the stately surface world and the raw passion of the characters. Emmanuel Levy of Variety, Jordan proves again he is a supreme storyteller of complex human drama. I know you haven't seen it, Joe, but the end of the affair, maybe you and a special lady cuddling up on the couch one rainy night, it's a really good movie. I'll check it out. I mean, I love uh, Ralph Fiennes. Uh, forever and ever and always. And Julianne Moore. She, she's absolutely incredible. So I'll definitely check out The End of the Affair. All right, one more to do here. Il Postino, exiled Cuban poet Pablo Neruda, Philippe Noiré, arrives on a tiny Italian isle. There's so much new mail that Mario, Massimo Torisi, an unemployed, un uneducated layabout, is hired as a postman. His job is simply to deliver Neruda's daily mail. That's right, postman with one job. He soon becomes a student of the poet, learning the art of poetry to woo a local barmaid, Maria Grazia Cucinotta and tell about the struggles of the working-class villagers. A firm friendship develops, and the postman turns into a chained man. Changed man, excuse me. As Roger Ebert said, the actors make this good-hearted little film into a quiet meditation on fate, tact, and poetry. It's a wonderful, sweet Italian movie, which is nominated for five Academy Awards. We all know Parasite won Best Picture, but it was a rarity when a foreign film would get nominated. Il Postino was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, Massimo Teresi, Best Director, Michael Radford, and Best Original Score. It's that sweet, gentle story which I referred to. I mean, at one point, and by the way, let's just stop the presses here, Maria Grazia Cucinotta. You take one look at her, who the hell wouldn't fall in love with her? Black curly hair, voluptuous. One scene, you know, she's got a, a ping pong ball in her mouth, which he ends up treasuring in cradles like it's gold. I mean, no kidding. Um... 
this world-famous poet Neruda, he agrees to help the postman by going with him to where she works. It's a real boss move. He ends up autographing one of his books for Mario while she's watching. Uh, and he makes a big show of autographing that book. Uh, the girl's mom, by the way, resists. She finds the poem that he writes her, which is, the first words are, naked, you are sublime. This is like a devout Italian Catholic mother. Like, what? Complains to Pablo Neruda, complains to the Catholic Church, this guy's scum, etc. Ultimately, they marry, but the lead also adapts Neruda's communist viewpoints, which actually leads to violence and tragedy. So it's a sweet story about a man falling in love, but then you end up getting these heavier overtones, which becomes more politicized. I think Gil Pacino doesn't have the power of Fellini's La Strada or Eight and a Half or the emotional poignance of Benini's La Vita e Bella, but it's still awfully charming. It's got captivating scenery. I mentioned the unforgettable score. And some of the lines of Pablo Neruda, I don't know his poetry that well, but I want to learn more about it. The smell of barber shops makes me weep. I'm tired of being a man. There was also a companion CD which was released. Neruda's poems were read by the likes of Sting, Ethan Hawke, Samuel L. Jackson, among others. And it was a real out-of-left-field hit for Miramax, which is now later disgraced, of course, by Harvey Weinstein. But Il Postino, a time capsule from 1994, a very sweet and charming film. And Joe, I, like I said, I watched it knowing that you had seen it years ago as well. Yeah, I saw it when I was in high school um, and, and and loved it even then, even as you know, a 15-year-old kid. Uh, Pablo Neruda, I, I remember we watched it because we were studying Pablo Neruda at that time. And, and the score is incredible. The, the, I remember it just being a beautiful, beautiful film. And I hadn't seen it in a while, so I was doing some research on it this morning. And I don't know if you knew that. Here, here's a tidbit that I found interesting. But Massimo uh, Teresi, he postponed heart surgery so that he could complete the film the day after they were done filming. He suffered a heart attack, a fatal heart attack, and he, and he died as a result. Yeah, it's amazing. The last uh, shot just says for Massimo, and uh, I remember he was nominated posthumously, which is so sad whenever that happens. I didn't realize it was to that extent. He'd actually postponed the heart surgery, but I do remember he had passed away before the movie ended up being released. It, it certainly adds some more resonance to the film, I'll say that. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. I really, really enjoy it. All right, those are your reviews coming up next. Um, and by the way, we're giving four Maple Leafs to all those. Scarface, El Pastino, and The End of the Affair. Coming up next, Kanye for president. What? And our special guest, Matt Schrader, has some great stories about James Cameron, a new podcast right here on Cadence 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On Sunday, August 30th, 2015, Kanye West famously declared the MTV VMAs, I've decided in 2020 to run for president. Nearly five years, he's saying it again. On July 4th, he tweeted, we must now realize the promise of America by trusting God, unifying our vision and building our future. I am running for president of the United States. As BBC News points out, there's a 2015 filing for a Green Party candidate named Kanye D's Nuts West, which has raised zero dollars to date and is my favorite part of this podcast. Tesla's Elon Musk responded with his immediate endorsement of West's candidacy. West had tweeted a photo with Musk on July 1st and the also very attractive Kim Kardashian West co-tweeted her husband's announcement along with an American flag emoji. Independent candidate filing deadlines have passed in Indiana, New Mexico, New York, North Carolina, and Texas. Unclear 
if West is planning to have his name appear on ballots or campaign for write-in votes. What the hell is going on with the world, Joe? I have no idea, but you know, this is Kanye being Kanye. He does this, he has God's Country coming out later this year, I think later this summer, and um, that's his new album, and he always says ridiculous, crazy stuff to always get his name in the news to hype up his album. So me personally, I think he's just trying to get his name in the news to promote God's Country. <sighs> Let's hope so. Um, <laughs> my man... <laughs> My man, Martin Scorsese, huge fan of Ari Aster. I knew this because at the New York Film Festival where I saw The Irishman, he talked about contemporary filmmakers. He said, man, I love this guy, Ari Aster. And this was before Midsommar came out. He was praising, excuse me, Midsommar had come out. Marty had not seen it. He was praising Hereditary. And he spoke about it. And now, Midsommar Special Collector's Edition Blu-ray, Martin Scorsese has penned a new introduction. God, Ari Aster, good life, huh? I got Marty talking about me. In the essay, Scorsese praises the young filmmaker's formal control of cinematic technique and storytelling. Scorsese wrote, A couple of years ago, I watched a first film called Hereditary by a director named Ari Aster. Right from the start, I was impressed. Here was a young filmmaker that obviously knew cinema. The formal control, the position of the framing, and the movement within the frame, the pacing of the action, the sound, it was all there, immediately evident. And think about this blurb. I'm looking for people with a need to express something. I need you to experience this. Not an idea or a theme as much as a whole experience or a recollection or a profound emotional impression from which the ideas and the themes emerge organically, so to speak. It's difficult to put into words for a reason because it can be expressed in moving images and sounds. In other words, cinema. Ari Aster's feeling pretty good right now, huh? Yeah, what a great co-sign to have. I feel like he can do anything at this point now that he has Martin Scorsese's blessing, you know? No doubt about it. Also... Sunday is 2021, which I went to a few years ago, got violently sick. My man Ben Lyons loves it like nobody else. Rumors right now that Sundance will go ahead, but how so? Heavy hitters like TIFF, the Toronto Film Festival, of course, my hometown, they're going to mount the event in September with both physical and virtual components. Sundance hopes to do that as well, planning to be expressed locally, globally, in person, and online. It's going to take place in Utah and at least 20 independent and community cinemas across the U.S. and beyond. Fingers crossed, as everyone knows, Sundance takes place in January in Utah. Let's hope that we'll be able to be watching movies in January in Utah in 2021. Right, Joe? Yes, 100%. I I really hope that it it, it can happen. I'm just curious to see what format they'll lay out in case it does go viral. But the only virus you'll need to worry about is one for your computer if that happens, Adnan. <laughs> well said. And uh, a couple things here. Uh, news that made me vomit. Season four marking the final chapter in the Bird family's journey. While I vomited at uh, the fact it's a supersized 16 episodes, I was elated the fact it's the final chapter. No more of this mediocrity. The good news is I won't have to pretend to like Ozark until... 2021 at the earliest, depending on how long the COVID-19 production shutdown lasts. But all you Ozark fans listening who think I'm an idiot for not liking it, 14 Emmy nominations, two wins to date for Jason Bateman, outstanding directing, and Julia Garner. So you're going to get 16 episodes in the supersized final season. Yeah. Couldn't care less, but I do love this. Larry David's going to return to HBO for an 11th season of Kirby Enthusiasm. I've watched every episode, and this will now take the show past one hundred episodes. I used to be of the mind that, you know, when you do something great, just just exit while people are still applauding. Ricky Gervais and extras, Ricky Gervais in the office, two seasons, I'm done. But we need we need curb, Joe. I don't care if it goes twenty seasons. I hope it'll be like the Simpsons one day. Larry David forever. I, I really hope I really hope you're right. I really hope they keep doing it. And this new season, season eleven, might be the one I'm most excited for ever because you know Larry T- David is just gonna do a pandemic 
theme season. You know what I mean? And I'm just curious to get his take on everything that's happening right now. As Cheryl Hines has said, Larry has been social distancing for years. And the last bit of news, which is big <laughs> news, rest in peace, the great Ennio Morricone, renowned for scoring Sergio Leone's Spaghetti Westerns. He also produced the sounds and music for Days of Heaven. That's right, the Malick's film. Excuse me, Terrence Malick film. The Mission, De Niro, what a score that is. Cinema Paradiso and The Hateful Eight, for which he won an Academy Award. Um, this guy's unbelievable. They didn't even mention my favorite one, which is The Untouchables. A native and lifelong resident of the Eternal City. Here's some more for you. Not only The Hateful Eight, uh, but also... Barry Levinson's Bugsy, which we're going to talk about in a second. Giuseppe Tornatore's Malena. That's a great soundtrack. He was known as the Maestro, received an honorary Oscar in 2007, presented by Clint Eastwood. He also won 11 David Di Donatello Awards. That's Italy's highest film awards. His ripe, pulsating sounds enriched Sergio Leone's low-budget shoot 'em ups No matter what, people will know him for the Spaghetti Westerns. A fistful of dollars, a few dollars more. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Those three star Clint Eastwood, Once Upon a Time in the West, and Duck, You Sucker. Morricone, for the record, did not like the term spaghetti western, nor did his work in that genre represented just a fraction of his career. Over 50 scores along the way. The guy worked with Bertolucci, John Borman, William Friedkin, uh, DePaul, I mentioned, because the Untouchables, Pedro Almodovar, Time Me Up, Time Me Down, Franco Zeffirelli, Hamlet, Mike Nichols. He did Wolf, for God's sakes. Even Bullworth. He did the score for Warren Beatty. Ennio Morricone, for my money, when it comes to movie scores, it's John Williams and it's Ennio Morricone. They are on their own special level. Uh, an incredible career, 91 years of age. And uh, just as he himself said, I hope people don't just look at the spaghetti westerns. Yeah, the good, the bad, and the ugly is iconic. But this guy had hit after hit. Incredible film composer. Yeah, he's one of those guys that even if you don't know who he is, you don't you you know who he is because you've heard him on your favorite movies since childhood. You know what I mean? So he will be missed for sure. All right, that's the news. We'll now turn it over to our special guest. Well, we're thrilled to announce Cadence 13 has partnered with Epicleft Media for this new season of the groundbreaking narrative audio drama series that explores James Cameron's devastating struggles and mesmerizing rise. Ten episode series takes place from 1977 to 1997. A 2020-year-old truck driver who ended up making The Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, True Lies, Titanic, and Avatar, and none better than Matt Schrader to be a part of it. Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron, written, narrated, and directed by three-time Emmy Award-winning journalist and filmmaker. And Matt is a friend of ours here at Cinephile because he did a terrific documentary, which he wrote and directed, called Score, a film music documentary back in 2017. And so I talked to him on Cinephile previously because I thought it was such an extraordinary doc. Matt, thanks so much for the time today. Add then, yeah, so great to uh, chat with you again. Uh, let's dive in before I want to go back to score a little bit because Ennio Marconi just passed away. So I do want to talk about music scores with you in a second. But hey, James Cameron, this is going to be amazing. Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. My first thought was this. James Cameron was once a 22-year-old truck driver. Tell me about that. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yeah, we. Uh, so the, the interesting thing, and this has been quite an experience because as you know I did a, a documentary on film composers uh, a couple years ago and uh, I kind of come from the journalism and documentary side of things and this is a scripted presentation where we've gone back we've researched a lot of the uh, story behind um, 
you know, these iconic filmmakers. And what we're doing is bringing in, you know, these these uh, extremely polished uh, actors and sound design and music to be able to create, you know, what is essentially a dramatized version of all of these stories that have been thoroughly researched. So we're taking the 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 kind of research back end of something and uh, and telling it in a narrative way and that's what uh, what this new season of Blockbuster is about with James Cameron and it was so interesting because Cameron um, really was kind of lost in his early twenties and he he loved going to movies and kind of had this fantasy of maybe someday I'll get to make a movie something like that and he goes to Star Wars at the Chinese theater in Hollywood he actually drives up from Brea. Uh, a little town, uh, you know, 30 miles outside of L.A. Uh, with his buddies and uh, and says, wow, that movie was unlike anything I've ever seen. We we got to go get it together. We got to go make a film, we, even if it's a short film, even if it's our own little thing. We got to, you know, get things in gear because uh, the world's about to change and we need to be on this or else we're going to miss our chance to ever ever make it in the film industry. So it's really this breakthrough of Star Wars and George Lucas um, that sets out James Cameron to go achieve things and over and over, and, and he's an outsider. He's not one, you know, one of these well-connected Hollywood people. He doesn't know anyone in this industry. So it's a very difficult and long journey. But um, but it, it ends up being this hugely ambitious story that uh, we could only tell in, in 10 episodes. Yeah, season one of the series focused on, you mentioned Spielberg and Lucas, their creation of the blockbuster movie with Star Wars and Jaws, won Adweek's 2019 Creative Podcast of the Year. In terms of Cameron, you know, one of the first images that comes to mind, Matt, is of course when Titanic won and him saying, I'm the king of the world. And he's got that ego about him, which listen, all directors have to have it to some extent. You certainly have to be the guy in charge. But I think sometimes he takes a lot of flack for that. People go, oh my God, look at this egomaniac saying I'm the king of the world. I'm like, Listen, he was referencing the movie. I don't know if he actually is a megalomaniac, but how does that compare to who he is as a person? Is he this relentlessly driven, crazily ambitious egomaniac or is he uh, maybe something a little softer that people don't see. Well, it was interesting, you know, in part of the research and and uh, and now actually in part of our what we're releasing as bonus episodes, these kind of behind the scenes interviews with his, you know, friends from college, uh, even though James dropped out of college at the time, but his friends from that era in the late 70s that he, he palled around with, went to movies with, the people that sat with him in Star Wars, you know, as they were witnessing uh, the then truck driver James Cameron being inspired by this moment. They always felt that he was, you know, one of those exceptional people, but hadn't found his purpose yet. And he had a vision and he had some desire to go achieve things. You know, he was trying to impress his dad. So that was always a factor in, in James Cameron's development. And um, and it ended up being something where he tried to push the limits at every stage and even sometimes when he didn't understand how things work, you know, our story dives into these stories about the Terminator and aliens where typically in Hollywood on a big production, you're not supposed to touch, you know, the the whatever the cinematographer is doing or whatever the, uh, you know, the 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 gaffers are doing with the lighting or whatever it is. James doesn't care about any of this. And he starts to really upset a lot of the unions and a lot of other people that are saying, hey, that's not how things are done. And James says, well, I don't know any other way to do it except to go in there and get what needs to be what needs to get done get it done and it's this different way of approaching the creation of film that's really interesting and and you know who can argue with the results yeah no doubt about no doubt about that certainly his resume speaks for itself and it's interesting 
you know, Titanic is just this, you know, gigantic blockbuster. And as I'm sure you guys detail in Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron, which is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, wherever you get your podcasts, the journey that he took and the risks that he took. I mean, it's, uh, Coppola famously said, as you know, about Apocalypse Now, this film isn't about Vietnam. This film is Vietnam. Well, certainly James Cameron, <laughs> I don't know if it actually felt like it was on the Titanic that it was sinking, but the stories behind the scenes, the effort he was making, the amount of money he was putting in, I mean, for good reason, he should feel incredibly vindicated because soaring budget, incredible logistical challenges, and it ends up being one of the most popular movies yep. of all time, certainly one of the most bankable movies of all times. It routes the Oscars, the likes of which I don't think we're ever going to see again. We're never going to see what Titanic did at the Oscars with that kind of a route in all those major categories. It's become a lot more egalitarian and democratic over the years. But to Titanic specifically, you know, where did that drive, that ambition stem from that literally, damn this, hell at all costs, I'm going to get this movie made? Yeah, you know, a lot of people forget that Titanic, the whole production of Titanic was such a mess. And it stumbled out of the gates when it first released. And this really freaked out the studio. You know, there are two studios on board for this. Fox, 20th Century Fox said, we got to bring in someone else because this is getting too expensive. So they sold off international rights uh, to, for for uh, for theaters, theatrical screenings. And, uh, and so then they had Paramount on board. So there's two studios riding on this action movie director, basically, at the time. You know, he everyone thought he was kind of crazy for saying, oh, no, I want to go make a romantic movie that's about, you know, something very tragic with the Titanic. And, uh, and it was uh, Peter Chernin at Fox that said, all right, we'll give you a shot. And then things just get, you know, massive. The, the budgets get massive. The production gets massive. He has 2,000 people working on this film. Everything is spiraling. I don't know if you remember, but there's, you know, all the trades in LA, uh, Variety, Hollywood Reporter, they start these Titanic Watch columns where it's updates every week on the latest craziness going on on set. People are... Uh, you know, they have a whole a PCP thing where everyone on set ends up uh, uh, getting uh, hallucinating because they, they someone spikes the soup uh, in their their catering. So there's literal chaos that's breaking out. And then when this comes out, it just barely uh, edges out the latest James Bond movie and it's its first week and everyone's panicking. You know, the first weekend, that's everything r rides on that first weekend. And James goes off to the desert and says, I can't believe I just screwed up my career. I'm going to have to create everything that I've done all over again because I'm going to be the guy that ruined two studios, Fox and Paramount. And I'm always going to be looked at as the guy that had this huge thing and then failed. And then the amazing thing about Titanic is that it stayed number one all the way through the Oscars in uh, March. And so there's this like amazing thing that defies all the rules of what, what a film is supposed to do at the box office. And all of a sudden, Titanic is the biggest movie of all time. The week before the Oscars, it's this perfect kind of confluence of events that all lead up to that moment where all of a sudden, James Cameron, kind of this outsider until then, is really kind of embraced by a lot of Hollywood. And they, they recognize that he's made something that's just monumental. That's well said. I remember seeing it. I, uh, you mentioned the trade papers. I mean, I was a huge Entertainment Weekly kid growing up. So I remember reading Owen Gleiberman's review and he raved about it. And uh, I went in thinking, well, I, you know, what do I all do? I care about some big old romance. And um, I remember thinking, I mean, everything with the actual Titanic falling apart was incredible. Like, it didn't matter if maybe some of the lines I didn't yeah. care for is a little bit cliched. Like, anybody who knows anything about filmmaking, Matt, you watch that, especially in a big screen. 
I was awestruck how he put together that third act. It was incredible. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an amazing accomplishment. I think that film and and it speaks to you know they built a whole set. They they essentially built a miniature film studio in Rosarito Beach, Mexico, down on the Baja Peninsula, and uh, and our series talks about that. You know, he he built part of a ship that was on this kind of hydraulic thing, so they could actually tilt this down, you know, and be able to to film these crazy scenes of uh of this massive ship you know starting to tilt into the water and uh and, and like it's these crazy you know visionary ideas that it requires a, a genius but not only a genius but someone who's so ambitious to be able to fight the studios and say no this is how it has to be done and that was James Cameron talk with Matt Schrader right now you can follow him on Twitter at Matt Schrader as we go through the lineage here it's amazing Matt Obviously, The Terminator is a huge movie, but I think T2 Judgment Day is one of the greatest sequels of all time. And I mean, when I look at his filmography, I'm tempted to say I think that might actually be his best film. It's outstanding from start to finish. My brother, it's his favorite movie of all time. Generally, I think sequels are tough to top the original, with exceptions, obviously, The Godfather Part Two and Empire Strikes Back. But T2 Judgment Day, I think, expands upon the first one. It's got marvelous sequences. It's got surprising amount of heart. How did he get hooked up with Schwarzenegger? Was that the studio decision or is that something James Cameron saw in him? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, well, you know, the movie he did before that uh, or a couple couple movies before that was Aliens. That was his kind of uh, sequel that he did that uh, a lot of people still think is just about a perfect movie. Um, and there are certain parts that have aged, but man, it looks good even even still today. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and then T2 comes around and it's, you know, such a weird thing the way Hollywood works, you know, it, people own rights to certain properties and for, you know, the Terminator after the Terminator comes out and it it does OK the first weekend. And then Orion Pictures says, OK, that's it. We're cutting the marketing budget. And James really panics when Terminator comes out and says, no, wait, wait, wait. But it, it did pretty well that first weekend. They say that's all we needed. We just we just wanted it to make back its money. Now we'll just let it go. So Terminator totally disappears. People don't even know what Terminator is until it comes out on home video. And back then it took several years sometimes for that to happen, home video and TV. So the Terminator isn't even a thing when James is working on Aliens and then starting to work on The Abyss. Uh, and uh, and then sure enough, there's this big kind of surge of interest in, in uh, the Terminator and people start saying, you know what would be great? A sequel to this. So this all comes together where another studio ends up acquiring the rights to something and they say, hey, James, how do you feel about this? It was just at this point in James' life where he's, he's a little bit lost, he's a little bit disappointed because the abyss hasn't performed like he thought and he says, you know what? Let's do this. Let's go make t uh, T2 and uh, calls up Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is all in our in our series as well, but calls up Arnold Schwarzenegger and says, "We want you to be the good guy now." And uh, and Arnold says, "Okay, well, I I, I trust you. If that's that's what you want to do, uh, then then I'm in." And uh, this all starts to come together and makes one of the greatest sequels of all time. It's amazing to think about. We're talking with Matt Schrader once again. Blockbuster: The Story of James Cameron on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, wherever you get your podcasts. I think True Lies is probably his most playful movie. I mean, again, a huge blockbuster, but I think it's really got some great humor. People talk about Jamie Lee Curtis's strip tease, fine. But I think Tom Arnold's got at least a half a dozen really funny lines in that movie. Um, <laughs> what did you learn about True Lies when you were digging into it? Yeah, I mean, I think True Lies is kind of the end of the pure action 
period of James Cameron's career. You know, he's he's doing these movies that are, um, you know, you can. Uh, I I hesitate to say this because it it it's a, comes. This is kind of a loaded thought, but a lot of people viewed him kind of like we we think of Michael Bay now, where you think this is going to be visually spectacular. It's going to be a huge you know blockbuster film. Um, but I'm not expecting for this to really have a lot of emotional fulfillment in it. And I, I think you start to see a little bit of a transition that is happening. You know, around the same time James is working on True Lies, he's also starting to line up this idea for, you know, maybe we can do a movie, you know, set on on the Titanic, this most kind of tragic of places. And, uh, and he's, you know, connecting all the dots and connecting with all these people that he's met throughout his career that all start to come together. And these are, you know, actors that he met back in the day, the Bill Paxton's. Uh, these are his, uh, uh, you know, his composer, James Horner. Um, you know, he's starting to bring in these pieces that will become uh, what ends up being the spectacular uh, film that Titanic is. And uh, and again, it's it's one of those things where James always feel he's got a chip on his shoulder, so he's got to try to prove himself. And he never really gets that. He feels like he's snubbed by, you know, when Aliens comes out and it's this huge blockbuster sensation, Sigourney Weaver's this breakthrough, you know, female protagonist in a in a science fiction action movie. And that's that's never, you know, been done to that level before. But James doesn't get an Oscar nomination. His producer doesn't get an Oscar nomination. He's thinking, what do I have to do to get recognized? And uh and and his dad still kind of feels like this is a misuse of a lot of what uh, James' real talents are in science and engineering. So we dive into that, and uh, and then you start to see all of those things come together when he actually dives to the Titanic. We have a whole episode, or episode eight is uh, is you know twelve thousand five hundred feet uh, beneath the uh, the the uh, sea level, and seeing Titanic for the first time. He actually kept a diary of a lot of those dives. So it's something that we're actually able to bring to life with a lot of uh, a lot of real kind of sound design accuracy um, and uh, tap into those things that ended up creating, you know, the iconic film that he made that, that shattered all the records then uh, a few years later. Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron, a talk with Matt Schrader. On a personal note, since I'm Canadian, born in Toronto, and I grew up in eastern Ontario in Kingston, I don't think people know James Cameron is a fellow Canadian from sure. Trappist Casing, which is northern Ontario. He also had an honorary degree from Ryerson, which is my alma mater. Do you talk at all about his Canadian background? Because I feel like nobody knows James Cameron is actually Canadian. Yeah, uh, it was an interesting thing because his first directing job that he got was for a, a a really crappy little film called Piranha 2. Uh, and uh, and that was something that was like a $600,000, you know, kind of B movie, C movie, D movie. I don't know how how low you can get on there. But um, but he's brought in because the producer, who's very eccentric in his own way, the producer needs an American. And uh, even though James is Canadian at this point, uh, I guess that, that, you know, that checks the bias close enough. So he ends up bringing James in basically to do that and then fires James after uh, 10 days or so on set. And uh, this is something that really kind of haunted James because it's his first directing gig. He's really excited about it. Sure, it's on kind of a, 
uh, a not so great movie, but he's going to try to make the best of it. And he's fired and he doesn't understand why. Nothing seems to make sense. He's being told, well, you're not getting the shots and, you know, you're not or unhappy with what you're doing on this. And the the footage doesn't cut together. And uh, the, that's none of that is true. It, it all ends up being, um, you know, this kind of uh, producer that that really wants to see things come together his way. So the producer ends up finishing that film. But it's something that haunts James and says, you know what? I'm going to go out there and try to prove myself and you know if people don't uh if people don't believe in my vision then I need to find new people and uh he fires an agent and he has this uh this kind of epiphany about the terminator and says you know what I'm going to throw everything I got into this and uh and try to make this as spectacular as it can be and uh and really pulls it off but it, you're right I mean it does start from that kind of Canadian um heritage I mean the uh the Cameron clan goes way back to Scotland and it's there's there's you know nobility there and uh there's still a uh, kind of a political leader a figurehead that leads the Cameron clan still in Scotland so when they enter enter uh Glasgow there's uh there are city bells that they ring so like if you go way back to like the 1800s uh when his family came over to Canada you can actually see a lot of his relatives are still uh, are still part of this very historic group that uh, fought the English for independence, and you know all of this kind of cool history that starts to make its way into a lot of the things that uh, that James is making as a an auteur director. Very cool. One more on Cameron that I want to talk music scores again with you. Uh, how pissed was he when Catherine Bigelow won Best Director for The Hurt Locker? His ex-wife. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think he was always very supportive of Catherine Bigelow's career. Um, that's the the first kind of thing they bonded over. In fact, a lot of the way, um, you know, from from researching James' personal relationships with people, he is one of those people that is so career focused that he start, you know, the personal and the professional start to kind of intermingle and it, it can start to get messy a little bit. And, um, but he bonds with people over this kind of creative spirit that they have. And, uh, Catherine Bigelow was one of those. He really saw, um, that she, uh, had, had this kind of visionary eye. It was something very unique that they, they bonded over. Um, and, uh, and he helped her on, uh, Point Break, uh, and on a couple other films as well, uh, writing the script and producing parts of it. And, um, you know, I, I think that he is one of those people that wants to see, you know, it, it's painful to him to see things not reach their potential, you know, he really wants to see things reach what they can actually be, what they can actually achieve. It's the kind of perfectionism that I think is in James Cameron. So um, I, I know that uh, he's extremely competitive. So losing a, uh, a best director or, or uh, best picture is always going to be painful. But um, I think that's why the moment with Titanic was so big for him, you know, as as uh, as this kind of Canadian-born guy who, as a, a, a teenager, moves down to Southern California, you know, 30 miles or so away from Hollywood. And, uh, you know, everybody thinks, oh, it's Southern California is Hollywood. It's not when you're that far out, not when you're in Brea, California. That might as well be the Midwest. And uh, and so he uh, he really has, you know, this desire to go prove himself, Um and that's something that the the spirit that carries us all the way through Blockbuster, um, through the ten episodes. And I think with the success of Titanic and where that ends up going at the end, which really nobody could have anticipated, uh, makes for a really really inspirational story. 
I just started subscribing myself, so I cannot wait to start listing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, wherever you get your podcast. Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron. Matt Schrader, you can follow him on Twitter, at Matt Schrader. He's also known for writing and directing Score, a film music documentary, uh, which you did a tremendous job with it. Nominated for various awards, uh, you know, won three Emmy Awards you've done as well because you're investigative, excuse me, Emmy Award-winning investigative journalism for CBS News and NBC News. But specific to Score, you won eight awards at film festivals, uh, number one documentary on iTunes for four weeks straight. I thought it was terrific. I was so happy when I got to speak to you here on Cinephile a few years ago. Um, the reason I want to mention it is Morricone just passed away. And, and whenever mm-hmm. I think about film composers, you know, James Horner's score for Glory is my favorite. Oh, uh, when I think of John Williams, obviously he's an icon and we know how brilliant he is. But I always think Schindler's List is a little underrated because everyone focuses so much on Jaws and the other stuff. But Morricone, I mean, I think his best is The Untouchables. But God, incredible career. I was so happy he finally won for The Hateful Eight. Incredible composer, right? Oh, amazing. I mean, the guy did uh, more than 500 scores in his career. And, and you know, over that period of time that, you know, he was scoring since I think the late 50s. Um, Might have even been earlier than that. But, um, but you know, obviously the, the spaghetti Western thing, he totally invented and you still see all of the kind of, you know, the ways that that is uh, tapped into today. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's very difficult to have anything with even a remote kind of Western feel to it and not signal something to that Ennio Morricone sound, which I think speaks to how influential this was and how beloved it is. Everyone kind of wants to be a little part of that kind of feeling that's there. Um, even when you have really kind of modern uh, Westerns, they still kind of say they recognize, you know, some of that history that that Ennio's responsible for. Um, and then, you know, he goes on to have all of these other hits. Um, and, uh, you know, one of my favorite cinema, Paradiso, uh, is something that I think is um, – loved by a lot of soundtrack people and maybe forgotten by by uh, a lot of pure kind of cinephiles um and uh and it, you know it's it's such a he's such a I, I you know short of John Williams I don't know that there's anyone that's done more for film music or the sound of cinema in general than Ennio Morricone that is well said, because I would always have the debate with my friend Kerry Shaw. He'd say, it's John Williams and everybody else. And I'd say, no, I think Morricone is right there with him, and you could make a case for both those guys. Uh, certainly, as you just pointed out, the influence of both of what they did with film scoring. And you mentioned Cinema Paradiso. You're right. I forgot yep. he did that one. I love, I just watched a couple of, I watched Il Postino again. What a great score that movie has. And The End of the Affair, which is a movie I really love from 1999. I think just the music from those movies is just so powerful. Matt Schrader, tremendous job, my friend. Thank you so much to reconnect. I'm glad in the past uh, we were looking at you as a a filmmaker and now uh, we're teammates here with Cadence 13. Once again, Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, wherever you get your podcasts. I just started subscribing. I cannot wait to listen. Thanks so much, man. Stay safe. Thanks, Adnan. Great to talk to you again. Mount Rushmore.
Now it's time for our Mount Rushmore fictional gangsters in honor of Al Pacino playing Tony Montana. Of course, that's in. Michael Corleone, The Godfather 2, that's in. Tony Soprano, because we're saying all fictional gangsters, so I'm going to include TV. Of course, James Gandolfini, that's in. There's three. Very easy, right? The fourth shot is tough. Listen, I, I know Joe is going to get Fat Tony in for Joe Montana from The Simpsons. Uh, I'd like to find a spot for Rico, Edward G. Robinson, and Little Caesar. How about Sonny? God, I love Sonny in a Bronx Tale, Chaz Palminteri, but of course I'm going to include my man Robert De Niro, Johnny Boy in Mean Streets, because these other gangsters, like Tony Montana is who everybody wants to be. Michael Corleone is ruthless. Tony Soprano, I mean, listen, nobody wants the depression, but who would love to be the mob boss? And listen, you got some other good uh, perks along the way. But Johnny Boy to me is where a lot of these gangsters are. De Niro's character in Mean Streets, the guy's a loser. He's a punk. Uh, you know, he's stealing money all the time from his friends. He's a bum. He's a bum. But I thought that that De Niro character is actually more realistic to what these small-time gangsters are like. You think a gangster, you always think of the mob boss like Michael Corleone and like Tony Soprano. But a lot of times, it's these, you know, the smaller guy, the, the underling, so to speak. That's what Johnny Boy represents in Mean Streets. It was Robert De Niro's first great performance. Therefore, it is on my Mount Rushmore. Tony Soprano, Michael Corleone, Tony Montana, and Johnny Boy from Mean Streets, honorable mentions, Rico from Little Caesar, and Sonny from A Bronx Tale. Joe, talk to me about Fat Tony. Fat Tony is so, so good on The Simpsons, and I have to throw him in. You're completely right. Uh, but he offers levity, levity as well. He's a funny, funny gangster. Um, I'm also going to throw in Michael Corleone and Tony Soprano. I think that if there is, if we're, if we're doing this, they have to be on there for sure. And then my last one, it's tough. I was torn, but I'm actually going to go with Stringer Bell from The Wire. Um, I thought he was the most interesting of the gangsters on that cast. He was more entrepreneurial. He would shadow lawyers. He was really thought he was. We all know kind of what happens. I don't want to give any spoilers away. But my four, Stringer Bell, Fat Tony, Mike Corleone, and Tony Soprano. I like that you call him as Mike Corleone. I would love to see his reaction if he did that. Uh, Stringer Bell, certainly <laughs> great. Uh, Omar from The Wire, also honorable mention, sure. Kaiser Sose, the usual suspects. How about Joe Cabot, Reservoir Dogs? Looks like the thing. Lots of great choices. That's our Mount Rushmore fictional gangsters. Now it's time for Total Recall. All right, Total Recall, the 1992 Oscars films from 1991. We only got a few more Total Recalls to go. Joe, best picture was The Silence of the Lambs, one of the most uh, rewarded films ever. One picture, director, actor, actress, and screenplay. I believe only It Happened One Night has also done that quintuplet of winning uh, those major categories. Uh, that was 1934, if I'm not mistaken. Who knows? An Oscar, an Oscarologist may tweet in and tell me I'm wrong, but who else was nominated for Best Picture? Beauty and the Beast, Bugsy, JFK, The Prince of Tides. I love Bugsy. I think it's one of the great gangster films of all time. It doesn't get recognized enough because not only is it about the sadistic, violent character, but it really melds this romanticism in the film as well. Not only his romantic vision of Las Vegas and what it could be, but also the fact he was this idealistic dreamer, even though he was a ferocious criminal. And his romance with Annette Bening, which is beautifully rendered on screen and, of course, later led to the marriage routine, Warren Beatty and Annette Bening. I, I, I love Bugsy. I love that film. I could watch it any day of the week. 
I I love Bugsy too. And quick shout out to Oliver Stone and JFK. But Silence of the Lamb, Adnan is on my top five, one of my favorite movies ever. So I have to go Silence of the Lambs for this. Um, and fantastic movie. Totally understood. One of my best friends, Jeff Lovelock. It's also one of his favorite movies. It certainly is very impactful. Best director is Jonathan Demi, Sons of the Lambs. God, that guy loves his extreme close-ups. That's what I think about when I think about Sons of the Lambs and the directing. Those extreme close-ups to Hannibal Lecter and the way he's just taunting Clarice. How about the fact that when he asks her, what did Clarice say? He goes, I can smell your cunt. Oh, strangely, I cannot. And later on, multiple MIGs like Jack's off in her face. It's just disgusting. Jizz in the hair. I mean, that's a disgusting movie in many ways, but Jonathan Demi gets gritty and grimy, and that's an unforgettable movie. Having said that, I don't think he should have won Best Director. Who else was nominated that year, Joe? John Singleton for Boys in the Hood, Barry Levinson, Bugsy, Oliver Stone, JFK, and Ridley Scott, Thelma and Louise. I'm voting for Barry Levinson for Bugsy. He won for Rain Man. I think Bugsy's actually his best movie. Again, I love his sweeping vision of Las Vegas, the way that he shows that Bugsy very quickly goes from this killer for hire for a guy who's delusional and for a guy who, you know, slowly gets pulled apart by his friends. It's all perfectly balanced. Love the score by Morricone. God, I forgot Morricone did the score, but it is a great score. And uh, I think as a director, he really balances all the pieces very, very well. All I will mention, though, if it wasn't him, I'd vote for John Singleton. I believe at that time, 21 years old, a rare black director getting nominated. Boys in the Hood, God, I saw it when I was 13, never forgot about it. I would go Levinson, Singleton, then Jonathan Demi. But listen, Oliver Stone, what he did with JFK, monumental achievement. And Ridley Scott, Thelma and Louise, you forget he directed that, right? You think about the female leads, but Ridley Scott actually directed it and did a good job with that story of female independence and female empowerment. I'm voting Levinson. Joe, I imagine you're going with Demi. Actually, I'm going to go with John Singleton nice. for the same reasons uh, that you said. And, you know, the, the light and, and the culture and, and uh, of, of Los Angeles launched Ice Cube's career. Who knew that he could act during that time? So, yeah, definitely John Singleton. Best actor is Anthony Hopkins, Sons of the Lambs, is Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Who else was nominated? Warren Beatty, Bugsy, Robert De Niro, Cape Fear, Nick Nolte, The Prince of Tides, and Robin Williams, The Fisher King. Every performance is brilliant. Prince of Tides, I was very reluctant to see. I'm like, God, this Streisand melodrama. Then I saw it because I love Nolte, and Nolte's tremendous. I mean, the scene where he's talking about the sexual abuse he suffered as a kid, the fact he was raped, he starts crying in Barbara Streisand's office. Tom Wingo. Forget about it. Robin Williams and the Fisher King. I love New York in June. How about you? I mean, funny. Playing this derelict who's incredibly hairy, but also suffering very, very tragically from mental illness. And he is not able to overcome the tragic death of his wife. And in the midst of all that Terry Gilliam madness, it's Robin Williams, which means it's also very funny. I think De Niro's Cape Fear is one of his best performances. I'm glad he was nominated. Come out, come out, wherever you are. De Niro literally went to prisons in the South and studied and talked to rapists and learned about why they raped women. And it was about control and power. And he literally audio taped and got the accent down. Terrorizing performance uh, in Cape Fear. And Anthony Hopkins, I mean, people often think of that as one of the great screen villains of all time. I don't dispute that. Only 22 minutes of screen time, though. So to me, I feel like it's a bit of a cheat. I'm going with Warren Beatty. I love Bugsy. Again, he has to show this guy's a maniac and also incredibly charming. He's a ladies' man. He's sweet. He's seductive, but he's ruthless. And the only person that can talk to him is Annette Bening is Virginia Lake. You know, when she tells him, why don't you go outside and jerk yourself a soda? Only she can stand up to him. You know, later on in the, <clears throat> the scene where he tells one of these guys to take a punch at him, he does. 
the scene where he's balancing, he's got literally like one of those chef hats and he's making a cake for his daughter. And he's also balancing the fact he wants to assassinate Mussolini, which he's telling Ben Kingsley about. And he's discussing Las Vegas. The way that Warren Beatty does that scene, vacillating between being a nice dad, I'm lighting the candles, I'm lighting the candles, and then going back and talking to his mobster buddies, amazing. Warren Beatty for Bugsy. I'm going to agree with you, Adnan. I'm going to go Warren Beatty. I was going to go Anthony Hopkins until he made the note that it was only 22 minutes of screen time, something I did not realize until just this moment. So I'm going to go with Warren Beatty. I love it. Uh, best actress was Jodie Foster, The Silence of the Lambs. I think that was the right choice. Uh, shows the vulnerability of that character, Clary Starling. The accent is dead on. Jodie Foster, very, very good. I think she deserved it. Who else was nominated, though? Gina Davis for Thelma and Louise, Laura Dern, Rambling Rose. Bette Midler for The Boys, and Susan Sarandon, Thelma and Louise. I'll agree with you as well. I'll go with Jodie Foster. I was about to say, I kind of wish it was one of the Thelma and Louise people because like that movie's kind of getting forgotten in some ways, but we both agree there on Jodie Foster. Best Supporting Actor. Remember, like, what the hell? Jack Palance, one people thought Marissa Tomei read the wrong name. He started doing one-arm push-ups. City Slickers is really funny, and Jack Palance is unforgettable, and he is a great actor. This is absurdity that he won. Who else was nominated? Tommy Lee Jones for JFK, Harvey Keitel, Bugsy, Ben Kingsley, Bugsy, and Michael Lerner for Barton Fink. Well, listen, Michael Lerner and Barton Fink is hilarious playing a parody of a studio executive. The big glaring example, and Joe and I like to do this when you look at the best picture, how the hell was Barton Fink not nominated for best picture? Like, that's one of the Coen Brothers' best movies. And Lerner is one of the funniest parts of that. The scene where he's talking to John Turturro's screenwriter about how he's trying to just eliminate the entire writer, you know, and he's talking about how you have to put certain things in movies, you know, just for the critics. He's really funny in that movie. He's also great in Eight Men Out, which is the movie I love. He shouldn't have won. I'm thrilled he got nominated. It's between Keitel and Ben Kingsley for Bugsy. Keitel, Lifetime Achievement Award for Mean Streets and Tax Driver and all the rest of it. The first scene where he drops about 12 FUs in Bugsy's face is hilarious. But honestly, it's Ben Kingsley's award. He should have won an Oscar for this. He's Meyer Lansky. He is Bugsy's deep-seated friend. And the scene in the car where he tries to tell Bugsy... Listen, you are in so over your head. If you can't pay back this money, I can't protect you. And, you know, you know, Warren Beatty says to him, listen, I've known you since we were too young to, to, to do whatever. And, you know, like, just give me another chance here. And the way that Ben Kingsley says to him, I miss you, Benny, and opens the door and leaves. It's uh, a really powerful moment in a, like I said, a tough movie, but it's a sweet moment. Even later on, when they're talking about, hey, what if he can't pay back the money? And Ben Kingsley softly says, I'll take care of it. And you know this childhood friend is going to kill his childhood friend. Shades of the Irishman, by the way, and how loyalty and how in the mob, there is no such thing as loyalty. You have to turn on your best friend if you have to, especially when it comes down to money. Kingsley and Bugsy, amazing. I'll go with Kingsley and Bugsy too. Um, incredible in performance. Greatest Gandhi in the movie Gandhi. I think he won an Academy Award for that too, but I'll go with Kingsley for sure. Great point. Amazing when a guy can be Gandhi, who is saintly, and then also play gangsters like Don Logan in Sexy Beast, and either way is compelling. Best Supporting Actress was Mercedes Rule for The Fisher King. Again, I really like The Fisher King a lot. I think she deserved to win. She's got a lot of sweetness and soul in the movie. You feel for her when Jeff Bridges refuses to commit to her. You go, come on, what's wrong with you, man? And Napolitano, she's such a sweetheart. She's such a feisty knockout in the movie. She's so nice trying to give Robin Williams a love interest. She's trying to be nice to Perry, and yet she's also funny. She runs a video store, for God's sakes. Who can't appreciate the kitsch value of that? She won the Oscar. I'm glad she did. Who else was nominated? Because there's one other person that I think could have been in the mix to win. Go ahead, Joe. 
Diane Ladd, Rambling Rose, Juliet Lewis, Cape Fear, Kate Nilligan for The Prince of Tides, and Jessica Tandy, Fried Green Tomatoes. Yeah, that's disgusting. The Fried Green Tomatoes actually is an Academy Award nomination. What a terribly trite film that was. Kate Nelligan, very good in The Prince of Tides. But the other person, of course, is Juliette Lewis. I mean, that scene where she starts sucking De Niro's thumb, that's an ad lib. It's grotesque, and it's unforgettable. She is so believable as Danielle Bowden, a teenager who's pissed off at Nick Nolte and Jessica Lang, her parents, and finds this creep alluring because he's giving her attention. I think of Juliette Lewis. I think of Cape Fear every single time. I'm going with Mercedes Rule. Juliette Lewis, though, was amazing. I'll go with Juliet Lewis then. Um, I do love The Fisher King, but you're right. Cape Fear. I think she might may, may have been like 20 in that movie. She, she's great. So I'll go with Cape Fear, Juliet Lewis. Yeah, I don't know her age, but she was playing a 16-year-old. Best screenplay written directly for the screen. Thelma and Louise. Callie Hoori won the Oscar. Don't think she should have won. Who else was nominated? Boys in the Hood, Bugsy, The Fisher King, and Grand Canyon. I will just continue here with the Bugsy freight train because James Toback, who's a terrible creep and a disgusting person, if you Google him, he's a perverted guy and he's done terrible things to women. But if I'm going purely by artistic work, I think he wrote a sensational screenplay with Bugsy, which, by the way, is not even completely accurate. I mean, Bugsy didn't invent Vegas, but if you watch the movie, you can get swept up in that ideal of it. I think the dialogue is very memorable. I've also mentioned Fingers on this podcast, which is a very good Toback film. Uh, 1A, 1B, though, The Fisher King, because it's very original. It's very funny. You're balancing a ton of stuff in that movie, Richard Legrevenese. I would go either Bugsy or The Fisher King, slight edge to Bugsy, but no issue uh, if either of those guys had won. Joe? I, I Honestly, I, I, don't, I have no issue with any of these movies winning. I've never seen Grand Canyon, though, so I can't speak to that. But I'm going to go with John Singleton and Boys in the Hood again, just for the story um, uh, what it did, you know, post Rodney King rise in LA at the time, young director, writer, I'm go with Boys in the Hood for sure. It would have been amazing if Singleton had won both Oscars and best screenplay adapted the silence of the lambs won Ted Talley. I think that was the right choice. Who else got nominated? Europa, Europa, fried green tomatoes, JFK, and Prince of Tides. I'm going to be sick. Fried Green Tomatoes got two <laughs> nominations here, at least in key categories, screenplay and Jessica Tandy. Listen, props to Oliver Stone. That's a hell of a screenplay he wrote with Zachary Sklar. You're basing on the books Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy, and On the Trail of the Assassins by Jim Garrison. That is not easy to adapt those books, such weighty material and very complex. I do think it's too long, though. I watched JFK once. I have no desire to ever watch it again. I'm going to go with Sansa Lambs. So it won five major Oscars. I would have said it should have won for Best Actress and Best Adapted Screenplay. They made the right decision with Ted Talley. I will agree. I will say Silence of the Lambs as well. Very, 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 very good movie. Still holds up to this day. Iconic. Uh, I will do Silence of the Lambs. Thank you so much, as always, for checking us out here on Cinephile. I know, but this is a good 90-minute podcast. I had a lot to say. Go watch Scarface. Go watch Hamilton. We'll be back next time. Thanks so much to uh, Matt Schrader. He was terrific. And go support this great uh, project, Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron, currently available on Cadence 13. Until then, I'll see you at the movies.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 